I remember the night John suggested that we ought to go on a little trip. I had visions of luxury and love. And what do you think I got? You plead guilty or not guilty? To what? Spent the night in my field. From out of the state. Mm. No, wait a minute, John. Wait, nothing. When men drive girls over the state line as you did, the matter's worth investigating. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Tickwish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. Samantha Ellis. And we are back celebrating the magical landscape that is Christmas. We are talking about the 1940 feature Remember the Night. And we have a special guest, of course, this week. The man who may not have invented Christmas, but he's certainly the person I think of when I think of the holiday season. It is Alonzo Duraldi. Alonzo, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me and Merry Christmas, everybody. Exactly. Uh, Alonzo, I know you as the guy that if it's about Hallmark or a Lifetime, if it's Christmas related, you mm-hmm. are the guy. How did you get into becoming the quote unquote Christmas expert? Well, 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas, and it focused on films like Remember the Night. It was a book that covered everything from sort of the obvious choices of a Christmas movie book, your It's a Wonderful Life's, your Elf's. But then it's also sort of trying to make the case for films that people weren't necessarily think of as being part of the holiday canon. So, you know, something like Lady in the Lake or The Lion in Winter or Metropolitan that is set at the holidays and the holidays plays a role in, but people don't necessarily think of it as the kind of movie they flock to every December when they want those warm and fuzzy feels. And then as my husband likes to put it, you know, I blew it on that book with all the legit movies. And so now to get my fix every holiday season, I'm stuck with Hallmark and Lifetime. (laughs) Uh, What are some of your, other than obviously talking about this movie, what are some of your favorite classic holiday features that you go back to every year? Oh, I I got a bunch. Well, you know, turning 50 this year is the musical Scrooge with Albert Finney. It's probably one of my favorite Christmas Carol adaptations. And the songs are all by Leslie Brickus, who I'm a big fan of. That one, I think, holds up a lot. I like to go back to it. There's some great French dysfunctional family comedies that I like, like uh, La Buche and A Christmas Tale. You know, living in Los Angeles, I'm spoiled in that I get to go see It's a Wonderful Life on the big screen every year at the Arrow. I mean, not in 2020, obviously, but generally speaking, that is a thing that we make as, as part of our December habit. So yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of them. I, mean, I literally did have to write a book about this because there's, this is a topic that, that I just am very into. And most people would probably know our podcast. We essentially, I think in the first two years of the show, I did all the Christmas movies. I pretty much started doing, I think at one December of the first year, we did four episodes on four different Christmas movies. And I feared that we had done all of the big ones. But when you suggested remember the night i realized i actually went back and typed it in to our search engine and we had not done it so i was very happy to to get to talk about it before we jump into breaking it down let's talk about the plot this is from 1940 directed by mitchell lyson stars barbara stanwyck and fred mcmurray this is not the last movie most people probably saw barbara stanwyck and fred mcmurray in but i believe it is the first movie they paired the, up in the first of four yeah Yes. Barbara Stanwyck plays Lee Leander. She is a woman who is arrested from a jewelry store trying to steal a bracelet. And the assistant district attorney is John Sargent, played by Fred McMurray, who is assigned to prosecute her. Her defense.
sense is that she was so dazzled by the jewels that she just walked out with it on her wrist. Of course, he knows better, but it's Christmas time and she is going to be stuck in jail because she she can't make bail and she doesn't want to spend the holiday in the slammer. And of course, John feels bad for her and posts her bail. And events happen that essentially sees Lee and John going on a trip to Indiana to visit his family. She's going to visit her mother. All of this is a conflict of interest in a court case, but of course, Love Blossoms, there's a barn dance. It is uh, uh, definitely a 1940s Christmas movie. Uh, Alonzo, I'm going to let you go first. What is your What was your background with this movie uh, prior to recording today? And what makes it stand out in the pantheon of Christmas films? Uh, this was one of the ones that I got to see for the first time when I was researching the book. As I started digging deeper and getting into titles that I had never heard of, or at least was only sort of vaguely aware of, and it was kind of tricky to track down. Like there was like a VHS release of it, but it was sort of sketchy. And then TCM kind of championed this movie and they started airing it every year. They eventually teamed up with Universal to put out a Blu-ray of it. So I think it was on TCM. I think the first year that they really started kind of like, hey, here's this movie that you might not know about. That was what kind of brought me to it. I like to think I've repaid the favor because there's a couple of things that, that started popping up on TCM after it was in the book. And I don't know that that's where they found him, but I'm going to take credit for it anyway. But I was immediately charmed by it. You're right. We, you know, when we think of McMurray and Stanwick together, you know, we we immediately go to to double indemnity. So to see them play this very sweet and charming couple, you know, it's it's a whole different thing. His mother is played by Beulah Bondi, who of course plays Ma Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. So this movie absolutely has Christmas bona fides, especially. I mean, you know, Stanwick obviously also doing would do Christmas in Connecticut a couple of years after this. It is the last film that. Uh, Preston Sturges wrote and didn't direct, but it is a film that he liked. Apparently, years later, when he had the option to buy 16 millimeter prints of films from Paramount, the only ones that he chose that were ones he didn't direct were this one and I think Easy Living. So yeah, I, I just was immediately taken with it, and I feel like it is the movie that when I bring it up to people, they are most likely to have never heard of it at all. So I love that we're being we're, we're part of the rehabilitation of Remember the Night 80 years later later, like getting the word out about this movie. I want to say that this and it happened on Fifth Avenue are often yes. the ones cited as being discovered by TCM and have now become Christmas classics because of their airing on the, the network. So absolutely shameless plug for watching more TCM, everybody, as if the <laughs> listeners of the show needed another reason. <laughs> Samantha, Drea, what about you? What was your background prior to recording today? I've seen this one a couple times, I, uh, probably on TCM, like you guys have been discussing and it's funny because it happened on fifth avenue was one i only discovered last year so yeah definitely getting into all of those christmas movies kind of because you know each year i'm finding more and more that we haven't discussed more that i haven't seen and this one i don't know it's one of those movies, as soon as I saw it, I felt like I had seen it. It just kind of fit right in with all the Christmas movies that I love. Like my personal favorite is Shop Around the Corner. Everybody who I think listens to the podcast knows that at this point because I talk about it every Christmas. But it definitely fits right in with that kind of film. And I think the thing that always stands out the most to me, especially with this last viewing, is how young Fred McMurray looks in this movie. Probably because 
he looks so happy. I know that sounds really weird, but I'm, I'm so used to seeing him in the apartment or the shaggy dog or the cane mutiny. And he's like a, a slightly disgruntled middle-aged man. <laughs> and it's, it's almost like seeing Henry Fonda in the Lady Eve after seeing him in 12 Angry Men. It just makes no sense. But, um, but yeah, I, I was really uh, delighted to see this one again, but, but it's one I've seen a, a couple of times. And I'm so glad that we're able to talk about it and reintroduce it like TCM's doing too. So I wasn't sure if I'd seen this or not because the name is kind of, Ah, oh, it could be a song, it could be a movie. And then when I looked it up and read the synopsis, I was like, yes, I think I've seen this. And then it started and I definitely had. I also saw it at my grandparents, probably on TCM in Nebraska, like in their basement. And this movie, I know that the Midwest parts are Indiana, but it felt so recognizable to me this much later, like when I was still there. And in the middle of it, you know, you're not seeking out those similarities. But now that's no longer. Both of my grandparents have passed since then. And so it's just it's a different vibe and energy. But I also definitely saw this after I had seen and became very familiar with Double Indemnity. So this whole movie was a mind trip for me. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I found that I was questioning or trying to imagine if Stanwyck's character was playing him for probably much longer than was written into the narrative. Like I kept trying to think of ways of like, ooh, it's a trap. Ooh, don't spring her. Oh, don't let her in the car. Oh, what's happening? Yeah, what's she gonna do with that cow? Like, yeah, I really, I really thought old Babs was going to try and uh, run, run over on him. This is one of two movies where Barbara Stanwyck and a cow are a crucial plot point and you don't really know what she's going to do with it. So, <laughs> um, no, to, to kind of go off of what everybody else is saying, I, I want to say that this was a TCM discovery for me, having seen Double Indemnity first and also Christmas in Connecticut before this. So for me... I love Barbara Stanwyck in these light Christmas films. It was it showed a different side to her. And she had often been so synonymous with playing fallen women and femme fatales that to see her playing a woman who is kind of a fallen woman here as Lee Leander, but is reformed, I'd say on her own terms, is really great. Now, of course, my heart belongs to, to Christmas in Connecticut always. And this I always tend to consider lesser. And I don't really know why there's nothing that's outrageously wrong with it. I think it's just personal preference. But I think that this is really a great showcase for these two to show that chemistry that would follow them to Double Indemnity and There's Always Tomorrow. And I think the Moonlighter is the, the Western that they did, which I have not seen. But you, I mean, it's evident. The chemistry between the two of them is evident. And you can see the Preston Sturginess of the script. It's actually said that Preston Sturges based a lot of this movie on elements from his own life. So the c concept of like falling in love on a journey, it was inspired by his relationship that he had with Eleanor Hutton on uh, his way to Palm Beach, which of course we'd also see in something like the Palm Beach story and how McMurray's character was supposedly based on the mother of his third wife. So, you know, he took a lot of elements from his own reality, but then he also hated that Mitchell Lyson took all of McMurray's parts because the character was written as supposedly very theatrical and over the top, which was not Fred McMurray. Mitchell Lyson just cut it and 
transferred a lot of the the narrative to Barbara Stanwyck, which Sturgis was not down with. But at the same time, he really liked Barbara Stanwyck enough that he wrote the Lady Eve for her down the line, which really changed her career and showed her as more of a comedian. So contentious bit of history associated with this movie, but I think it all works out. You do get that sense of theatricality with Willard Robertson playing the public defender who's coming up with this whole hypnosis thing for Stanwyck's character. I mean, like that is such a crazy courtroom performance. He reminds me a lot of like the other reporters in His Girl Friday, you know, like that propensity for like purple prose and just like, you know, taking this one tiny idea and stretching it out far past anything remotely recognizable. It's a lot of fun to watch. I don't know where we want to start with this this movie. There's a lot that we could... T- I mean, obviously, I want to talk about how this plot line would not work in any form of reality, which is why we love classic movies, because if you think about it for a second, like the concept of the assistant DA bailing out a defendant that he's prosecuting and then taking her on a road trip, regard- irrespective of whatever shenanigans the plot involves like i would think that there would be a lot of repercussions somebody would be disbarred it's got mistrial written all over it yeah (laughs) not just takes her on a road trip takes her across state lines and across country lines yeah i'd actually love to talk just to start there because one of the things that stood out this time i watched it when you know with my sort of podcast brain on and I love this movie and I think it's got such a winning sort of structure to it. It has such a nice balance of like what is good and what is bad and is one person anything. The morality cooked into this and the discussions on morality are fascinating and that's a whole other thing we can look at. But I honestly was surprised other than the the legal side of it because it's ridiculous i was surprised this is not a structure that has been lifted and made into more of a trope that there's something about you know you know we often see romantic comedies where they start at odds and then end up together but this idea of starting with a bad girl and a good guy and then it twists and then she finds her sense of goodness while he you know there's something there that i'm like oh i could see a thousand variations and updates certainly there are other things that have elements of that like you could say even something stupid like 10 things or no how to lose a guy in 10 days like there's all sorts (laughs) of dumb stuff that do have parts of this but it's just such a solid concept you could hang so much on well i I think what makes this so firmly established as a christmas movie beyond just the sort of obviousness of the setting of the time of year is that this movie has a redemption thread going through it which you look at it's a wonderful life you look at a christmas carol obviously is i think the the sort of uh, rosetta stone of this whole thing and you know like even home alone has it this notion of the holiday days like allowing people to discover their best selves and to find the best aspects of themselves and so here you have you know we see the her awful 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 mother and you know like the doubt and the suspicion and the repression that she comes from and then you see how she genuinely blossoms under the care of Beulah Bondi, under the care of McMurray's loving family. And it's this notion of like, this is a woman who could have gone down a completely different path if she had had the support from the beginning, if she had been cared for, if she hadn't faced this sort of benign neglect, you know. And so I think that fits into this sort of Christmas narrative that we've come to expect where people change their life. People dig into themselves and find the better aspects of themselves 
themselves or have it brought out of them by somebody who cares, who is showing them affection that maybe they haven't received before. I think one of the things that really stands out to me about Stanwyck's character from the beginning is she's not trying to cover up her crime. She's not trying to make any explanation or cast any doubt about who she is as a person. She just comes out and says, even to her own prosecuting attorney, yeah, pretty much I did it. This is the kind of person I am. I don't make any excuses for it, but I was hoping to be out of jail by Christmas. I don't know how, but that's just what I was hoping for. And the fact that she is able to get out of jail, she has the experience with the loving family. Just like you're saying, it definitely brings out that goodness in her that I that I do think makes a really good Christmas movie. And like you were saying, Drea, the fact that Fred McMurray turns a little bit bad too towards the end is like so fascinating to watch. Like him encouraging her to jump bail and all of that. I mean, it's so interesting because he seems like such a, a decent person and he's just willing to ditch all of that. But I think that kind of latter act of the film, um, that kind of conflict between what his mother was telling her about, you know, wanting to keep his job and wanting to think that he worked so hard for versus the love that they have for each other, the love that they're beginning to have for each other, I think is a really interesting thing about it too. Because that's not something that's really brought up a lot in film. When I think what I notice a lot about just Sturges and the 1940s in general is this emphasis on class and how much the American class system kind of damns people for, without them necessarily doing anything. You know, I think of something like It Happened One Night, which situated the concept of the Daffy heiress and, and rich people. You know, they, they're just like you. They're flighty and they don't understand the world outside their bubble. But then as the depression would end and the World War II would eventually start in the U.S., there was this shift into showing, especially with something like Preston Sturges or even Frank Capra to an extent, the small town average Joe being drawn into crime or poverty or something and how their inner goodness kind of has to deal with that. I think of like what Preston Sturges would eventually work on after this, which is The Great McGinty, which is about this tramp turned into mayoral candidate in this, this rigged election. When you talked about the whole class issue thing, it just made me think of the line that Jimmy Stewart has in Philadelphia Story, where he talks about how like somebody can be born to the purple and be an all right Joe and somebody can be a man of the people and be a, a, a complete jerk, you know? And so, yeah, no, you're right. I, I think definitely that structure comes into play here. And yeah, we're going to see a lot of Sturge's elements later that we see here. Like, I mean, the the, the terrible mother here for, of Robert Sandwick is the lovely mother in uh, Hail the Conquering Hero, which is also movie about sort of small town values and this notion of what we've earned versus what we're given, you know? I also want to point out that it's funny you bring up It Happened One Night, Kristen, because the actor who plays Shapely in that plays the defense attorney. Right. (laughs) And they're both such theatrical, such standout performances, even though they each have, he, he has like two minutes of screen time in each. 
Exactly. And I think Sturgis said he wrote the script because he wanted to show the idea of, you know, love reformed her and corrupts him. And I think that that's a, an interesting way to create a love story because it does insist on having to change your values for somebody. But at the same time, I also, as much as I love this movie, I also think a lot of it has to do with kind of domesticating Barbara Stanwyck's character, which is something that you'd see in a lot of her movies. She's such an outspoken presence as an actress that much like Christmas in Connecticut, which is a story about her being this happy single woman and then finding that she wants a house in the country and a husband and a baby. Here, it's the idea of she was happy being a single woman you know, kind of being down on her on her own and having jewels and furs and all of that. But really, it's not until she goes to the simple life and they truss her up in that ridiculous bow and that dress. And she realizes that, you know, with love and romance comes this simplicity that she really wants, which allows her to change her concept of of right and wrong. Which now, is- I, I think Christmas in Connecticut is actually sort of intentionally playing on that notion. You know, that not only is this character... Uh, a happy single woman, but that she's lying about being proficient in this kind of domesticity. And over the course of the movie, both has to learn how to do it because she's being called on that lie. And then also discovering that oh, maybe she wants this after all. So I think they very intentionally are taking like, okay, this is the Barbara Stanwyck arc. How do we play with that? You know, and, and like sort of comment upon it directly. But one of the things I liked about this one was the moral complexity of it, that she may have seemed happy and fine as a single woman, but it's not like she couldn't also embrace what she gets from the domesticity. Like she can contain multitudes, much like Fred McMurray's character. It's interesting, the whole idea of like, he gets corrupt. I'm like, no, there's still such a solid decency in all of the choices he's making. And for he and the audience to be privy to how she's treated by her mother, and you hear that she's, her mother's been calling her a thief since she was a child. So of course she's going to become a thief. Like that, and you know, she's told she's worthless. And so she thinks she has no worth. And the idea, there's a whole other argument to be made there of if we looked at cause and effect or if our court system took more into account of causality, of background, of duress, of long-term stress. There's all these things. So Fred McMurray, to me, in the choices that he's making, it's not just like, oh, I fell in love with this dame and now I'm making all these bad decisions. It's, oh, I fell in love with this woman that I wrongfully judged as being one note and a poor example of decency herself. And now my own decency is broadening to want to help her more than I was. Well, and I think it's the idea of the law versus justice. Exactly. And I think that morality, I love so much for a Christmas story. I think that a lot of Christmas stories, like Alonzo was saying, that the redemption part of it is not just one person doing right. It's the expanding of things. And, and I think that this takes that on in a way that feels both holiday, but it also fits for romance romantic things. It fits for just societal elements. And I think it does it in a really elegant way. I think the really fascinating thing too, is both the decisions that they each make throughout the course of the film are because they're walking a mile in somebody else's shoes. 
like they're experiencing different perspectives that they didn't have before. Like Barbara Stanwyck, you know, she through this whole journey is deciding to make decisions that aren't just for herself because of what she's seen and because of what she's gone through. And Fred McMurray is kind of seeing what life is like on the other side of the tracks. And he's using that experience to make decisions throughout the latter part of the film. So I think that also attributes to it for sure. I appreciate that classic films of this era tend to have a very, I'd say nuanced, you know, most people kind of give classic cinema, oh, everything is black and white. The good people are really, really good and the bad people are really, really bad. And that's not necessarily the case. It's like Alonso says, the difference between law and, and justice in that Lee is definitely doing wrong things but the movie never situates her as a bad person therefore she is punished quote unquote by going to jail at the end of the movie but the implication is that this is not a life sentence it's not a death sentence you know it's not the end of double indemnity so she has allowed that concept of rehabilitation that i think we've gotten very far away from not just in our movies of course well she gets the guy but she also earns the guy i guess is maybe you know one way to think about it a a little throwaway thing just in terms of really giving these characters some heft that i love that i don't think i'd really noticed as strongly before but it really hit me this time was that you have the maiden aunt character who lives with mcmurray's mother and this is sort of a staple kind of character in, in films of this era and when she pulls the dress out for Stanwyck to wear to the big New Year's barn dance. First, you know, there's the joke that it's wrapped in a newspaper about Teddy Roosevelt, but on top of the dress is this bundle of letters tied up in a bow and nobody talks about it. And they just sort of look at each other and the the, the maiden aunt kind of takes them and puts them aside. And she and Stanwyck have this silent moment. It's like, oh, you get so much of what this woman's life has been and where it might've gone and what she's endured and the tragedy that she has lived through. And again, I think it's so much about like how much of our lives are shaped by our pasts and how we decide to to let that, you know, like determine what our present is going to be. And obviously I think she has lived a fulfilled life. She's running this farm with her sister, I guess, you know, and, and she helped to raise Fred McMurray, obviously. But, you know, just that unspoken thing of like, oh, you had love in your life and it's not there now. I agree so much. Also, for the record, we've discussed this before. If this was a stage play that my high school put on, the aunt is, of course, the character that a very young me would have played. The old funny lady who's like, oh, put this on. Oh, let's bake this. So good. Fine. I recognize that character in every movie we talk about. My popovers. Exactly. My popovers. <laughs> but the are the cookies burning? But the idea of the family in general It's not just a contrast between her mother, which is acute, and then also her mother, you get a sense in terms of like how your past and how you handle it reflects who you are. You're like, oh, this father left. She's remarried this new fun, grumpy guy. So this is how this woman has internalized all of it. And she's just like projecting nothing but like bile. Whereas this other family also gone through stuff and how they've decided to like keep their outlook. But that's the other thing that makes this such a great Christmas view for me. When you leave, I feel like when all of us leave Lee's home and her mother's treatment, you're feeling pretty raw. You're like, oh, I don't uh, what's going to bring me back from this? What's going to bring you back is the daffy warm embrace of this family who's so welcoming to her And there is such a noted relief, even as a viewer, of when 
when the mother finds out, like he comes clean, he's like, well, actually, here's the thing. She's a criminal. She's whatever we just met. And the mother's immediate reaction is to be like even warmer and just, oh, do you know what I mean? Like, it might be kind of ridiculous that her first, her first thing is so on the nose of like, oh, you know what? That's just probably a sign of someone who didn't get enough love. And you're like, well, she didn't. We just saw her mom. How'd you know that? But it's also so welcome. You're like, oh, thank God. Because if she'd also had to tiptoe in that scenario or like win the family over, there's something about having that family be just a hundred percent team Lee from the second she gets there that makes this feel just even more sort of warm embracey than maybe a film that came out a different time of year. This is just a reminder that in 2021, I want to do a Patreon thing where we put Drea in an old lady wig and just have her say maiden aunt lines <laughs> on Zoom. I think that that would be something that people would want to see. <laughs> I'm available. I'll also do my uh, when I was 14 and learned how to draw wrinkles oh. across my face, but like with a thick brown liner so you could see them from 50 feet away. <laughs> I looked great. Do some great Marjorie <laughs> Main moments. Yes, yes, yes. But but no, you're totally right. And I I mean that's a common thing. You know, '90s rom coms really also embrace that trope of like bringing this strange woman to your family and your family really embracing that them regardless of their past or anything like that. And I think that's also a Sturgis quality that I really like is that he really did create communities that you could be a stranger and felt completely at home. You know, I think of something even like the miracle of Morgan's Creek, which you can listen to our episode where I revel in saying the name Trudy Cockenlocker for a long time. But, but in that movie, they are dealing with some incredibly like scandalous topics outside of her last name, but the family is still incredibly kind-hearted, even though there's a lot of friendly ribbing going on about the plot of that movie. And so I think that's really what Sturges is able to create, is taking all these really daffy characters and still creating a sense of family and unity and happiness out of them. That even with a big ensemble cast, I think some directors just couldn't really work with. Well, one of the popular tropes uh, on Hallmark these is what we call the fake fiancé movie, which is where somebody has to bring somebody home for Christmas for some complicated reason. That They're tired of being the only single one left in the family, or they promised they were going to bring this guy home and they get dumped right before Christmas or whatever. And I think it kind of is that notion of two people who maybe don't necessarily either, either don't know each other at all, or they don't necessarily like each other, or they don't really have a relationship. But the atmosphere of the holidays and the atmosphere of the family love and the way that the family reaches out to who they think is the real fiance, you know, it, it provides the kindling that is, you know, the makes the spark between them kind of become a conflagration. I've lost this metaphor, but you know what I mean. Exactly, exactly. Well, and I mean, Mitchell Lyson doesn't really get brought up a lot in discussions of great directors. I mean, he did do several movies that are, are now kind of synonymous with classics. Midnight is one of my favorite comedies ever. And one of the and when people talk about the great films of 1939, they don't talk about Midnight enough. They do not. I need to see. I've had that on my list for a long time and I have not gotten to it. So I, I know I fail. I fail. But he did. I mean, he, he did stuff like Death Takes a Holiday. He worked with practically every big actress that you can think of. You know, Carol Lombard, Claudette Colbert, Barbara Stanwyck, of course. 
Olivia de Havilland, if you've not seen Hold Back the Dawn, you should. Veronica Lake, uh, he did I Wanted Wings in the same year as uh, this movie. I think it was 1941. So, you know, he he seemed to be a really great actress's director, even up until the 1950s. One of his last movies was a remake, The Girl Most Likely, which if you've not seen The Girl Most Likely with Jane Powell and Cliff Robertson wearing no shirt for no inexplicable reason for the entire movie, you should watch it. It is delightful. But I think he has a really great, I mean, from the sounds of, of the research, cursory research I did, you know, he really did pare back Sturgis's script and put that focus on Stanwyck's character, which made Preston Sturgis very unhappy. He said, quote, let me find the quote because I thought it was really, really funny. The film had quite a lot of schmaltz, a good dose of schmurs, and just enough schmutz to make it box office. And, you know, I think as much as I love Preston Sturgis, the man was a perfectionist. And I think he does not give Lyson credit for kind of putting the focus on on Stanwyck because she is so magnetic. Now that's not to say we should probably still talk about Fred McMurray because he's also here. I have mixed feelings on Fred McMurray. Good side. So happy I did not have to hear him say the word baby at all in this movie because if you watch Double Indemnity, you can get really drunk playing a drinking game every time he says that word. And I think I just, Fred McMurray is one of those weird actors where like when he plays a cad, I hate him. I think because his face is so punchable looking. Like it just looks like it's meant to be hit. But then when he plays like this strong, silent, leading man, it's different than, you know, if you had a Jimmy Stewart or if you had a Dick Powell playing him. And I don't know why that is. Maybe you guys can kind of pinpoint why that seems so different. I grew up on My Three Sons and then The Shaggy Dog, so it took me a while to get to this kind of McMurray performance, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, with the first time I saw Double Indemnity, I was like, what? Fred McMurray? What? You know? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, but you're right. He is, he is, a, he does good cat. I mean, he's awful in the apartment. You just want to like throttle him. But I think he can be, he can be sweet and romantic, at least in this film. I don't know that I've seen many other films where he kind of has to carry this kind of role and, and, and sort of, you know, be the romantic lead. I, I, I'm sure there are other ones. I just haven't seen them, but I totally buy this movie. Like I, I buy the notion at the beginning where, you know, the, the, to get him on the phone, his boss says, Oh, it's a young lady wanting to make an appointment. So like, I, I believe him as a, you know, kind of a New York play boy type but i also believe him as this kind of indiana hick made good and i believe the uh, how it transpires you know between him and stanwick so you know i it's hard to put it in the perspective of his career because yeah he doesn't put off like he's not gary cooper you know he's not clark gable he's not your traditional sort of like uh alpha male leading you know charismatic whatever but the, whatever it is that he brings to the table he uses it all really well here yeah. yeah, I definitely agree with that. The question is, it's it's not whether he's a good... I don't have any trouble believing him as a lawyer. The trouble is whether you believe him as a leading man. <laughs> and, Ooh, um, burn, burn? That sounds like a burn. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I mean, I also agree that his face is punchable. But the, the problem with McMurray, I think, is his roles were so varied that you can't believe him as anything anymore <laughs> once you watch a certain variety of his work. Because you also see him, again, I bring up like the Kane Mutiny and the apartment, as you mentioned, and he just played everything. So 
And then before this, you know, he worked with like Carol Lombard and Hands Across the Table. And that's a very traditional leading man kind of role. I love him in this. I think he's really attractive. He's very my type, but it didn't full on put me over. And I think that's why, as you were mentioning, Kristen, that's why I love Christmas in Connecticut more because Dennis Morgan, you don't even have to think about it. He just screams jolly, adorable leading man. And you want to pinch his cheeks, not punch him in the face. <laughs> don't, don't get me started on Dennis Morgan. I oh hate no, him. I was trying to win you over, Kristen. <laughs> One day we will have an episode devoted to uh, classic men Kristen hates, and Dennis Morgan tends to be the top. Oh, next girl, to you like, have like eight of them at the top. Yeah, I know. I know. Top. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I yeah, have you love Peter Lawford, who most of classic Hollywood hates. So. I know. I know. I'm an enigma. I'm an enigma. Uh, but no, I watch Christmas in Connecticut for Reginald Gardner, anyways. So. <laughs> but to to kind of touch on Fred McMurray in 1940 specifically, I think you know, in terms of what Samantha was saying about him being so varied, in 1940 alone, he did this. He did a period piece called Little Old New York, and then he did a western film called. Uh, Rangers of Fortune and he also did the film Too Many Husbands which is one of my favorites it's essentially gender swapped my favorite wife so Gene Arthur is the what would be the the James Garner if we were talking about Move Over Darling uh, the Cary Grant and I want to say it's David Niven and Fred McMurray are the the returning husband it's Fred McMurray and the the new husband is is it no it might be Melvin Douglas I get them confused I'm sorry Sorry, the Gail Patrick. <laughs> it's the Gail Patrick. And it's really a lot of fun. But I mean, that that shows you, I think, McMurray's range. You know, part of that is being beholden to a studio. You know, you don't get to choose what they're putting you in. But the fact that he could kind of hop around from like a period piece to a Western to a, a screwball comedy to this romantic film kind of showed his range because he fit, seems to fit comfortably. I haven't seen the the period piece uh, or the Western, but I'm assuming he fit comfortably in them. I'll add to his defense for this film specifically. I think that it actually helped the character that you don't look at Frederick Murray and think, ha-cha-cha, because if we had met that DA and been like, oh, this is a total ladies man or whatever. The ickiness of him asking for her bail to be waived. And then the ickiness, again, she ends up with him because the bondsman is like, oh, I get it. You want me to get this lady out of jail and bring her to your home? Like the inner city sex trafficking of a grown woman. And so if we had met him and thought he was lecherous at all or a real playboy or anything like that, but this, she gets there and you believe that he's dumbfounded. You believe believe that he doesn't understand what he set in motion. And I think that that's crucial to believing the kind of like the transition from the city to the Indiana decent farm boy who like worked his tail off to get to college. Like you, those two would have been hard if you had met him and been like, oh, hello, handsome town. Can I just get Drea's ha-cha-cha to open and close every episode? <laughs> because I thought that was the best thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> No, I mean, I think Fred McMurray in this sense to go, you know, back to, to Preston Sturgis and his concepts of, of leading men, I think is very interesting because whether it's Fred McMurray or Henry Fonda or Joel McRae, he really seems to champion the all-American looking guy that is 
definitely handsome, but not threatening, as as Drea says. You know, I think even if you had someone like a Cary Grant, someone that was smooth and knew he was hot, like it wouldn't work. It would be that concept of two beautiful people that who's zooming who type of thing. And it wouldn't work. You know, you need the fact that Barbara Stanwyck is beautiful and glamorous, but she has that hard quality to her. And Fred McMurray is definitely not Johnny Weissmuller. I think that that works to everybody's everybody's advantage. Now, that's they almost Randolph put that, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Scott, exactly, exactly. They almost put that on the poster. Definitely not Johnny Weissmuller. <laughs> uh, although Randolph Scott was to go back to my favorite wife. So there you go. It all, that's what it made all me think back. of him, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, do we want to touch on anything else that I, I haven't brought up? I would not be able to let this episode go by without talking about Sterling Holloway. Yes, Thank yes, you. yes, 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 yes. This Art is one of those movies where I was already a Disney fan before I became a classic movie fan, obviously. And I, it was like the perfect transition into classic film, finding all of the voice actors from all my favorite Disney movies. And of course, this is no exception. I think this is probably his best classic film. I'm saying that not having seen a lot of his live action work, but he definitely has some amazing moments in this. He's not only the comic relief, he's really like cute in this movie. Like you want to pinch his cheeks. And this song that he has is just so adorable. Like I can just hear him singing it as Winnie and, the Pooh. And, and, his, and his courtship of the, you know, Indiana farm goddess is rather <laughs> adorable, I think. Are we keeping track <laughs> he of how many- her arms. Yeah. Oh, that was true. That was so good. Are we keeping- Keeping track of how many cheeks Samantha wants to pinch today? I was going to say, there's been a lot of pinched cheeks in this episode, so. <laughs> Sterling Holloway and Chill Wills, you, like you really, when, when you've grown up on cartoons, you start looking for them in movies and the live action doesn't always do them justice. I know it's always weird to to notice those voice actors and certain things because you're like, oh, that's what they look like. Like Sterling Holloway has that look that you you know right away it's him. But even seeing someone like like Phil Harris, who was the voice of Blue in certain movies, you're just like, wow, okay, that makes sense. It's very weird, and I did love it. Else, did anybody else grow up with the Sterling Holloway Peter and the Wolf record? I know of where, it, yes. Where he narrates. I was like, that's, I think of Winnie the Pooh, but I also think of that, like, you know, oh, look out, Peter, you know. <laughs> I appreciated any time a movie, like, finagles in a reason for certain people to sing, and you're like, what? Why? Okay, all right. What, you get, exactly. You're here. It was, it's, the, it's the parlor. Come on. I mean, that's what you did in 1940. Okay, that's fair. It had, it had a little more, like, <laughs> believability cooked in. I do want to throw out, since we are talking Christmas movies, and this seems to be the debate every year, what constitutes a Christmas movie, As especially as we're talking about it in the classic film world? Is it a movie that is necessarily or exclusively set on Christmas? I say this considering The Sound of Music has become a Christmas movie, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas, or Meet Me in St. Louis, which only involves the last half of the movie being Christmas set. So... For all of us, what constitutes a Christmas movie 
in a classic film. I, I very much always put this in the eye of the beholder. I think Sound of Music is a different case. You know, for some people, it's the Ten Commandments, oddly enough. Um, and I think if it's a movie that you watch at Christmas time, that's great. But that's kind of a different category. We're t- if we're talking about a Christmas movie, yeah, I think a film, if it's it, it, it needs to at least be set at Christmas. And then beyond that, it's, it really is kind of up to you. Like the whole the whole Die Hard uh, conversation, for instance, it's happened over the couple of years as, uh, as a friend of mine who co-hosts a podcast called Tis the Podcast says they mentioned Christmas in Die Hard more times than they do in Jingle Bells. But, you know, I, I think for me that there is a general sense of often, not always, you know, that th- th- it does bring a, a certain kind of warmth, a certain kind of coziness. And again, that, 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 that redemption arc of sort of people finding their best selves. But this is not a hard and fast rule. I mean, yeah, you can say that, that Meet Me in St. Louis only has part of it said at Christmas, but, you know, it does give us an iconic Christmas song. So I think it's sort of inescapable. I qualify John Waters' Female Trouble as a Christmas movie, and it's only got one Christmas scene at the very beginning. But again, iconic moment of Divine dumping the Christmas tree onto her unsuccessful suspecting parents so it's like that's enough that 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 little nugget is enough to to put it in for me your mileage may vary and i think we all have our own idea of what they are but i do think that it's worthwhile to go beyond your obvious sort of white christmas bells of saint mary's type movies and look at how people implement the notion of christmas in different ways i mean uh, uh, one of drea's favorite movies stanley kubrick's eyes wide shut uh, is very much using christmas as a counterpart to what the plot is you know i think the reason in recent years we've seen so many kind of horror films and action films that are set at christmas because christmas is as i say the white snowy backdrop against which one drop of blood shows up very prominently you know the Christmas has this is one of the last things in the culture that I think we still attribute to a certain sense of purity, a certain sense of like family goodness. And so to unleash something nefarious against it as a backdrop just throws it into that much sharper relief. If dumping a Christmas tree on somebody constitutes a Christmas movie, does this make a summer place a Christmas movie? Oh my <laughs> oh, God. Yes. That's a great Christmas scene. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I, I think, I think if there's a Christmas scene that really stands out and you want to call it a Christmas movie, yeah, Summer Place totally falls in that category. <laughs> um, I want you guys to know that I will be hiring and retaining Fred McMurray's legal services for the slander that Alonzo <laughs> has just put out there. I think it's important for me to say I detest the movie Eyes Wide Shut. My thing with Christmas movies, and actually specifically with this one, something I really appreciated about it is it's they're going home for Christmas, they're taking part in all these festivities and everything, but it's still a pretty secular movie. They're not, you know, we're not going to church services, there's not a lot of moments sitting talking about the nativity and the birth of Christ. And I think in America, there's a, it's still being finessed, but, you know, Christmas break is Christmas break regardless of your religion. And there are a lot of people who do not think of themselves as Christians who enjoy a lot of Christmas elements. And I think that films especially that help bridge that divide are so nice because you may not be Christian, you may not look at Christmas as like the birth of Christ, but you do think of it as a special time with your family, as you may even give gifts. There might be other things going on. And I think that this movie handles that in a beautiful way, that this town has a lot of festivities. They have all these like family special event things, but you you don't even see them like, oh, we all today decorated the tree or whatever. It's more that Christmas represents this time of year that you get to be together. 
year. Yeah, I mean, so so much of how we celebrate Christmas now, we stole from the Christians stole from the pagans. You know, so there's there's so much that is that is left over from like the Yule and fest, uh, not Festivus, uh, the Saturnalia and the the winter solstice and that kind of thing. So the whole the trees and the the lights and all that kind of stuff comes from other places. And so yeah, you don't have to be a hardcore Christian or or even remotely Christian to want to celebrate the holiday. Dave always likes to refer to me as the Christmas atheist because I I love the holiday very much, but I I do not believe in a in a higher power. It, I did find out last night. I went through the extras on the the Blu-ray for the first time, and they have a gallery of stills, including scenes that were cut from the film. And there is a church scene that they shot, but then did not make the final cut. Yeah, for me, I I definitely think it's a it's a wide range of movies to go to the religious side and I'm a person that usually abhors anything with like religious sentiment in it but one of my favorite movies that I tend to watch around the holidays is The Song of Bernadette which is is a great movie and that is an incredibly religious movie but at the same time it's also this element of like faith based not in the, the way that it's come to be identified now but like this question of faith versus reality and you also have a young Vincent Price playing a horrific religious denier um, it's really interesting but like you brought up Alonso the line the line in winter which is great if you're in the mood for family squabbling film that happens to be set in the old english times uh with stone castles and eleanor of aquitaine being really really catty families fighting at christmas is my favorite subgenre right you know, I, I'm so mad that Kevin Spacey has ruined the ref for me because that oh, used to be God. one of my go-tos every year. I know, that's a favorite and it's it's done now. But again, maybe substitute the ref with the Lion in Winter if you're if you're looking for, for something new out there, listeners. You'll get your ye old English fix and your family squabbling and and Anthony, it, I want to say Anthony Hopkins is in that. It's been a long time since I've yeah, seen it. Yeah, it's one of his first films. Anthony yeah. Hopkins is a closeted uh, gay aristocrat. Yes. So if you're looking for, maybe we'll do that next Christmas. I don't know. But yeah, I, I definitely think it's it's a lot about, you know, feelings. And if you have good memories of watching The Sound of Music, I don't because my mom despises the sound of music so i have to watch it in secret um, like in the corner and she's like are you listening to my favorite things no i'm not yeah so i you know it's a wide-ranging topic i think especially for classic films which try to to hit on everything you know every genre for everyone so remember the night final thoughts what do we want to take away from the movie do we recommend it alonzo i'm going to start with you uh yeah a huge huge recommend i think so many people don't even know this movie existed because it did have kind of an iffy run on on home video for a while but now you can stream it on peacock there is this gorgeous blu-ray that is part of the tcm vault collection that like i said has stills and lots of other goodies on it has a, a, an introduction from the late Robert Osborne. Yeah, I, I think if you think that you are on top of your Barbara Stanwyck, Fred McMurray game just from having seen Double Indemnity, you have a whole other kind of version of them to check out. And if you think you've seen all the old Christmas movies, you may not have seen this one. Sam, Drea, what about you two? I, again, yeah, same thing. I would definitely recommend it. I feel like this is one of those movies I haven't given enough of a chance compared to the ones that I already love. Like, around the corner and Christmas in Connecticut. But I think this one and it happened on Fifth Avenue, I need to start adding to my yearly watch list and just start like kind of bringing it into the fold. And I think I'll develop a little more of an appreciation for it. But at the moment, I'm going to say 
it's your basic, really nice, really warm movie. The acting is great. There's nothing bad to say about it, but it's not like a favorite yet. We're going to run out of movies before we get to the shop around the corner, and I'm not going to be able to avoid talking about it. I know it. It's going to happen. We've not done shop around the corner, mostly because I did not like it the one time I saw it. Oh, no. I know. I know. (laughs) Well, you can watch it again. For Remember the Night, it's interesting. Christmas in Connecticut is my favorite Christmas movie. And so, but I'm not afraid of having two Bab Stannies up in my top five. And I, you know, rewatching this, I was really, really struck with it. I keep talking about the morality at play. And I think that there's so much to think about in terms of decency and looking further into people's backgrounds and affording a kind of breadth of things and having that baked into a really sweet little romance works for me. I, I really, really liked this. I was so happy I rewatched it. Super happy Alonzo brought it up. Yeah, no, I and I think that this is one if you haven't seen to definitely try and seek out. Yeah, I'm going to pretty much agree with everybody else. I think this movie is is delightful. It's, again, not my favorite Bab Stanwyck movie, but it's it's in the top 10, I'm sure. And it's it's very sweet. It's great that this was the movie that, as much as Preston Sturges didn't like how the script turned out, he ended up directing. I think it's a nice it's a nice bridge for him. And if you're a fan of really smartly written and, and witty rom-coms at Christmas. It's a must. So yeah, definitely watch it. Uh, Listeners, let us know your thoughts on Preston Sturges, Shop Around the Corner, Drea as everybody's favorite wizened old aunt. Uh, You can send them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. We'd like to thank Alonzo Duraldi once again for sitting down and joining us this week. Alonzo, where can fans find you online? Where can they read your work? Do you have anything coming up you want to share with us oh golly well let's see uh you know I, i'm the reviews editor at a website called the rap it's t-h-e-w-r-a-p.com and you can uh catch my reviews of current movies there uh and i podcast like a mofo I do of course with Ms. Drea clark the show who shot you uh my husband dave and i have been doing linoleum knife for the last 10 years so I have a show called breakfast all day with all my co-hosts from the old what the flick youtube show that no longer exists and then i've started a show this year that i'm really proud of called a film and a movie uh with uh, Daniel Thompson from the Deck the Hallmark podcast and every week we take an old movie and connect it to a more recent film and hopefully like you guys we're sort of you know exposing people to older titles they might not know about the connections are really interesting to discuss we've had critics on we've had a lot of filmmakers on uh, thanks to TCM, actually, uh, quite a few female filmmakers in the last few weeks as part of their Women Make Film series. They've given us access to people like Kimberly Pierce and Winery Kahiu. So, you know, definitely check those shows out. I don't have anything major coming up. I mean, I, I will be doing a lot of podcasts to talk about Christmas movies because that is my lot in life. But I do have a book that I'm doing with the Deck the Hallmark guys that's coming out in fall of 2021. So please keep an eye out for that as well. Thanks for having me. I, I, I love I love this topic, but I love this movie especially. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Journeys underscore film. Samantha, where can fans find your stuff online? Well, at the moment, you can mostly find me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. I have my blog, Musings of a Classic Film Addict, that will return from its unscheduled coronavirus hiatus, (laughs) surely. And you can also find my 
food posts on Classic Movie Hub. And Drea Clark, what about you? Um, I am Twitter at the Drea Clark. And as Alonzo mentioned, we have another movie contemporary film podcast together with our friend Ify Waterway called Who Shot Ya? Which is where podcasts are. Yes. Uh, and of course, you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. Player FM, Spotify, we are everywhere. Definitely uh, check us out and leave us reviews wherever you can. You can also find us on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. And we are on Instagram. I keep forgetting to promote that. We are at ticklish biz. You can find episode updates uh, everywhere on all of those sites, as well as fun pictures and we do a lot on the social media, I think. Uh, of course, if you want to help us out with your money and get access to a lot of extra fun stuff, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We have all sorts of great things. We give away pins. We're getting ready to give away our Christmas gifts that I give everybody from Ticklish Biz HQ, which is my house. And this year, it's going to be a great mystery grab bag of all sorts of stuff. We also have two bonus shows if you need to hear more of us. We do double features uh, with Adam Kautzer, as well as based on a true podcast with William Bibiani, as well as a bunch of other extra bonus content that will be coming out as we take our holiday hiatus in a couple weeks. But that's going to do it for us next time. Big episode 100. We have the specialist of all special guests and we have a great movie that we are excited to talk about and celebrate 100 episodes of Ticklish Business. So that will be next time. Cha-cha-cha!